This morning, uh, congregation, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel according to Luke, uh, we'll be reading uh, a few different sections. We'll begin on page 1177 in your pew Bible by reading Luke 1, verses 5 through 25, and then we'll drop down and we'll read from verses 57 through 80. Uh, we'll be considering, as we make our way through a variety of songs that are recorded in Scripture, upon the announcement of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, songs that are appropriate for this Advent season, uh, when we look forward with expectation uh, for the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, we considered uh, the song of Mary, and now this morning we consider a part of the song of Zechariah. And so we begin reading at Luke 1, verse 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years." So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and who was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple, but when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I will then drop down to verse 57. Uh, where we pick up and continue reading. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. 
So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all those who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give us light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Uh, thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God. Our congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we indicated in the introduction before the reading of Scripture, it is our desire this morning, as we continue making our way through the Advent season, to once again look upon one of the songs that was sung by the faithful upon the first pronouncements that indeed the Lord Jesus Christ would be incarnate and that a deliverer would come to Israel. And the desire this morning is really a simple desire that is summed up in the Song of Zechariah as we just sang it in Selection 294 in the fourth stanza. Preach that God is tender-hearted, and by Him our sins forgiven. Uh, that's my desire also this morning, to preach to you and to preach to whoever may hear these words that God is tender-hearted. And that by Him, particularly in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is the forgiveness of sins. And my desire is that as that message is proclaimed, we would embrace it in faith and walk in repentance, and that joy and gladness would also fill our hearts, that then with joy and gladness within our hearts, our tongues might be employed to make known both near and far, the praises of our great God who has so loved us with an everlasting love. Because I believe there is a danger, and perhaps I alluded to it last Sunday, there is a danger of just sort of a superficial sentimentality 
with Advent season. Now, there are many practices and customs associated with this time of year that can be appreciated. Uh, I thought of this even last evening uh, as I drove into town and saw the square there all decorated for this time of year, Uh, the lights and the different activities, and there were several people braving the cold, and uh, they were enjoying the experience on the square of seeing uh, all of the external apparatus connected with this time of year. But the danger is, is that we begin to think that that's what this whole Advent time of year is all about. And you see, that's the danger of a spiritual superficiality. And it's a danger that I believe all of us must be aware of. And a danger that I believe is best remedied by looking at the Scriptures and seeing how these saints responded to the announcement that unto us a Son is given. Uh, We looked last week on the Song of Mary. We'll look uh, this morning on the Song of Zechariah. Uh, Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at the Song of the Angels. But as we look at the Song of Zechariah this morning, uh, we notice that it is a two-part song. If you've kept your Bible open, which I would encourage you to do this morning, you'll notice that there is the first stanza, if we might call it that, uh, which begins at verse 68 and goes through verse 75. And then there is the second stanza uh, from verses 76 through 79. And it's really that second stanza that I want to focus on with you this morning. We read it again, the words of our text from Luke 1, beginning at verse 76, and you, child, and Zechariah is referring here to John the Baptist, you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I want to look at this stanza underneath the theme of the Song of Zechariah, noticing, first of all, the occasion for the song, and then secondly, the work in the song, and then thirdly, the blessing in the song. Uh, So the Song of Zechariah, more specifically the second stanza, we'll look at the occasion, the work, and the blessing in the song. So first of all, the occasion for the song is the birth of John, or perhaps more specifically, you might broaden that out and say the announcement of the birth of John, and then also the actual birth of John. But we've put those all together underneath this sub-point, the birth of John, and then the role of John. And so part of what I want to develop within us as a congregation is an understanding of the role of John the Baptist. Uh, He was born to an old couple. And I don't say that with any type of disparaging comment, but Zacharias was old, and Elizabeth was old, and they were barren. No child had been given unto them. This already alludes to the fact of the supernatural work of God in providing for the work of redemption. Uh, But notice also uh, that Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, they were characterized by a genuine piety, a genuine godliness. This is seen, if you look back at uh, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, of the testimony of uh, Zacharias and of Elizabeth, uh, that they were uh, of the priestly lineage. The division of Abijah for Zacharias, 
Uh, and Elizabeth was one of the daughters of Aaron. Verse 6 goes on and speaks about their spiritual maturity, you might say. Uh, they were both righteous before God. This is not speaking about uh, a perfection, but rather a general conduct of their life. They walked in the ways of the Lord. They walked in all of the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. They were genuine, pious individuals, living out their lives as they were characterized by the fear of the Lord, with a certain hope and with a certain expectation that God was the God of redemption. And as Zacharias went about his priestly services, in the rotation of the activities, it fell upon him to offer the evening incense, signifying the prayers of the faithful people of Israel. And it's upon that moment that an angelic revelation is given. And boys and girls, when you read in the Bible of angels coming and speaking messages to people, I want you to think of this, that heaven is speaking to earth. The angels are the ones who they, they receive a message from God Himself in the heavenly throne room that is over all the activities of the earth, and the angels come as they are sent by God. It's as if God says to the angel Gabriel, Gabriel, I'm going to do something, and I want you to tell Zacharias about it. And God says, in essence, I'm going to bring about the realization of the promise from of old that there would be a deliverer, and before the deliverer there will be a forerunner a herald. And history has continued for thousands of years until we come to the present moment in which God begins to unfold the reality of that promise. Just in passing note that as history continues, history continues according to the will of God, according to the sovereignty of God, and according to the purposes of God. So first of all, we ought to be reminded that history is not some pointless rambling throughout time. There is a purpose to history, even though we may not understand how every event ties into the purpose of history. By faith in the Word of God, we believe that there is a purpose in history, and the purpose of history ultimately is the exaltation of our God through the salvation of His people. And so you and I ought to be those who are characterized by a sense of purpose within our lives, not in and of ourselves, but as we understand the reality of the unfolding of the history of redemption. Now, no doubt Zacharias and Elizabeth, they had their questions about how God's providence was unfolding itself in their own lives. They were barren. And that would have brought a certain social stigma to their lives. And there are times in our own lives that perhaps we have questions, why this Lord? And in our hearts, faith and yet a questioning can coexist. And we find that that's also true uh, within Zechariah as he has faith, yes, but he also has these questions. And so, upon the pronouncement, you'll notice in verse 22 that Zacharias has a tough time believing this promise. Verse 22, but when he came out from the temple, he could not speak to them, and they had perceived that he had a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. But why was he speechless? He's speechless because, in many ways, he struggled with this understanding of the promise of God. And so he requested a sign. And the sign, in essence, was Zechariah, because you have questioned the promise you will remain mute until the promise is realized. And I want to draw this out for a pastoral word 
true faith can at times be weak faith. True faith at times can be weak faith. Now, that's not to be celebrated. We don't celebrate the weakness of our faith. But the reason I want to draw this out is for the pastoral encouragement of anyone who may be struggling with the weakness of their own faith, saying, in essence, this morning, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. I believe the promises of God, and yet I'm wrestling with doubt. If that speaks to anyone who hears these words, do not despair. Zechariah was in the exact same position. And they say, like father, like son. And you can think of John the Baptist later in his ministry when he is imprisoned. He sends a few of his disciples to Jesus Christ with what question? Are you the Christ? Or do we look for another? Now, John the Baptist was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit from his very birth. He was a man who did valiant things for the advancement of the kingdom of God, and yet he also had his moments when faith and doubt were intermixed. And maybe you also this morning have your doubts. Do not despair. But do look to the promises of the Word of God. And do hold fast to those promises, especially related to the mercy of God and to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Well, what role would John have? The role is summarized in many ways with verse 76 uh, in the song of Zechariah. It says there, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. So notice there the role. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare His ways. Now, boys and girls, a herald, we don't have them so much anymore, but a herald would go before a king. So if a king over his kingdom, if a king was going to go visit a a, a town in his kingdom or a village in his kingdom, uh, he would send a messenger before, maybe a couple days before the king showed up. And that herald... You have to think this is before all sorts of means of communication. The herald would just simply walk, so to speak, down Main Street and say, the king is coming. The king is coming. And and not just so that the people go, oh, that's interesting enough, and then go about their daily activities, but so that the people could prepare. And often this preparation would include, you know, maybe the the cleaning of the streets, maybe even the the, the painting of the, the fronts of the buildings. Get everything ready for the royal king to enter in. You might think in some pal comparison, uh, you know, the tulip time festival, the washing of the streets. And this is John's primary role. And it's helpful to think of this way. His primary role is to prepare for the coming of the king by pronouncing that the king is coming. And giving specific instruction for what the people ought to do in response to that coming of the king. And this is not just something that John the Baptist does. This is also an application what the preaching of the gospel does. 
The preaching of the gospel, as we have it now in the New Testament dispensation, says that the King Jesus Christ has come, and He is coming. We stand in between the two advents of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remind ourselves that advent just means the arrival of a notable person. In this case of the most notable person, the eternal Son of God incarnate Jesus Christ. And in many ways, this is what the prophets of the Old Testament did. And John the Baptist can be rightly concluded as the last of the Old Testament prophets. Because what did the prophets in the Old Testament do but proclaim that the coming day of the Lord is soon on the horizon of redemptive history? Therefore, prepare for the coming. You see, we don't want to just fall into what we've described as some spiritual sentimentality, but rather we want to proclaim to you and to myself, that the King is coming. And that brings us into our second point, the work in the song. The work, if you look over at Luke 3, the work of John the Baptist is is summarized in what we have there recorded in Luke 3, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. This is referring to John the Baptist, and he went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, if we think again that Advent is the expectation of the arrival of a notable person, what you really have here in Luke 3, verses 3 through 6, is the inspired account of John the Baptist's Advent sermon. So think of it that way. If Advent means the announcement and the connected anticipation of the arrival of a notable person, You have in Luke 3, 3 through 6, John the Baptist Advent Sermon, recorded by inspiration. Look closely at it with me this morning, because here I believe you have the template for the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially through the Advent season. Notice that there is not a lot of extras, so to speak. John the Baptist doesn't orchestrate some type of pageantry. He doesn't have all sorts of tricks and gimmicks to make the the hearts of the people kind of tingle with some seasonal satisfaction. He really has no props He's out in the desert with his voice. And he simply says, you must repent and you must believe. Now you can work through John the Baptist and his theology and his preaching, and I encourage you to do so and you can test what I've just said. But that was the Advent message that came forth from the lips of John the Baptist. If if you glance over to the Gospel according to John, it's also summarized uh, in in a most well-known verse. I I trust that many of you know it. 
uh, John 1, verse 29. But I want you to, if you're so inclined also, to see it uh, with your eyes, even as you hear it with your ears, so we can bombard your senses with this message. Here again is John out in the wilderness beyond the Jordan, preaching his Advent series of sermons as he continues in his earthly ministry. Verse 29 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, and that word means look with perception. Behold, John says the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This this has to be the message that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaims to any and all who will hear, including, and we might add especially, during the Advent season, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice that Advent is centered upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and what John the Baptist's role was to do, and of course as it was blessed by the Holy Spirit, was to bring individuals to a true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what He was going to do. And that's our desire also. Before God, with with a clean conscience, our one desire for this congregation and for anyone who hears these words in any other media outlet is that you would come to an increasingly clear knowledge of who Jesus Christ is in both of His natures, in His eternal divine nature, that your heart would echo, I believe, I know that He is the eternal Son of God but also in His very real human nature. That even if you have your doubts and perplexities in earthly life, that you would say, I know that in the fullness of time, God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And that you also would know something of His work and an increasing knowledge of His work and an increasing appreciation of His work. The steps of His humiliation That you would know with the confidence of faith, I know that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. I know that He descended, figuratively speaking, into the depths of hell, especially in the hours of the cross when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I know that He arose from the dead and has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father from whence He will come to judge the living and the dead. Notice in passing how the first advent leads us into the expectation of the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You might say this way, John John had a bare-bones ministry. And you might say it this way also, John had one sermon. And I believe that the Apostle Paul also, in essence, had one sermon. And I believe that Peter had one sermon. Now, yes, it was given in a variety of contexts and different words were at times used, but I believe that Christian preaching has and must center upon this, proclaiming to people who Jesus Christ is and what He has done, especially to bring about the imparting of a knowledge of salvation. But notice also that this proclamation is focused upon the remission of sins. What does that word remit mean? It's not a word that maybe we use so often today. The remission of sins 
is the cancellation of the debt. It's, it's close to a synonymous term with forgiveness, but it means that a payment has been made that deals with the debt of our sins. You and I have sinned against God. You and I have an infinite debt that we can never begin to pay. But here's the wonder of the gospel, that the Christian doesn't have to worry about paying that debt because it has already been paid, has been paid by the grace and the mercy of God in and through the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now think through this with me for a moment. When a person is aware of their infinite debt, but then also aware that that debt has been dealt with definitively by another on their behalf. What is the only logical response? The only logical response is to praise and to bless the mercy of our God, and that's exactly what Zacharias does. And we consider that in our third point, the blessing in this song. If you flip back to Luke 1 and look at verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. I believe that the mature Christian, not the perfect Christian, because we already said oftentimes doubt is mixed in with our faith, but the mature Christian is a person who is mesmerized by the attributes of grace and of mercy and therefore cannot stop talking about grace and about mercy. And I wonder if we could perhaps evaluate ourselves as a congregation, and I know it's not really possible in some type of concrete way, but if we could evaluate our conversation as a congregation? Would there be evidence that we are a people who are mesmerized, spiritually speaking, by grace and by mercy? Have you ever had it, you know, where, where somebody has been on vacation and they've seen something, maybe one of the so-called wonders of the world, and they, they just they can't help but talk about it? over and over and over. And, and maybe they can't help but show you the pictures. Now, of course, we don't have pictures uh, in a certain sense of the grace and the mercy, although we do have the sacraments and their visible representation, but are we a congregation that is spiritually mesmerized by the realities of mercy and of grace? Listen to yourself. The words that you audibly speak, but also the words that never make it outside of your heart, but are there within your heart. Do we know something of verse 78 through the tender mercy of our God? Tender mercy, it's a beautiful attempt at a translation of a word that's so rich. Tender mercy is the kindness 
the softness of heart, the attitude of fatherly pity, of a compassion for someone who is in a state of misery. Behold, congregation, your God, a compassionate God, a God filled with pity, and a God who in His compassion and His pity acts, bringing about redemption, bringing about salvation. Through the day spring on high. I want to, in the time remaining, just look at this phrase, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Uh, day spring, it's tied to the dawning light. That dawn light which watchmen eagerly wait for. Now those of you who perhaps, because of the uh, infirmities of the elderly years, have a difficult time sleeping through the night, you ever wake up early, early, early in the morning unable to sleep and it's dark out? And you just can't wait until the sun comes up. The sun that brings light to the darkness. I have to confess that West Michigan received uh, quite a snowstorm uh, in the past 48 hours or so. Some of the reports uh, from family members that I've received indicate 18 inches of fresh white snow of Really an idyllic Christmas setting, is it not? And I, I trust that their intentions were honorable. They sent pictures of the landscape covered in snow. Looked beautiful. So I took a picture of the barren ground and sent it back to them. This morning my brother-in-law commented and said, we have snow but you have the sun. I thought about that on my drive in this morning. The sun brings life, brings light. The day spring from on high has visited us. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness of our own sin, our own gloom, is broken by the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to bring guidance. Notice verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In closing, is there a soul who hears these words, who is longing for peace. That peace is found in the light of the world. That peace of being reconciled to God, of having your sins definitively paid for, of being right with God. That peace is found only in the light of the world which has risen with healing in his wings. And so my closing application by way of exhortation is embrace the light of the world. 
in the simple but yet continual exercise of faith, finding their peace both for now and forever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light that has come and has shone in the midst of our darkness. And as we have attempted to speak about that light, uh, we humbly ask, Lord, that you would draw the hearts of many an individual uh, to recognize uh, their need, but also the reality of your tender mercy. And may our souls then be satisfied, and with our satisfied souls, may our mouths praise you both now and forevermore for the work which you have accomplished in and through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.